Welcome to The Empire's New Clothes. This is the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. Today we're speaking with Wade Davis. So he's an anthropologist at the University of BC. He's also produced over 18 documentaries. He's traveled the world and met and studied some of the most remote and unknown of the cultures that we have on this planet. He's also an exploring residence at National Geographic. A while ago, he wrote an article about COVID in America. It went completely viral. You possibly read it. And so today we're going to be speaking all about that, diving in a little deeper and getting to hear his real thoughts on the topic of America, empire, COVID, society, culture, mixing it all together and see what comes out. Well, welcome, Wade. Good to have you here. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, so I was actually doing a bunch of research, getting prepared for this, and I found out you are a uh, fellow hunter. Well, you know, not really. I, I, I never grew up uh, in a hunting family in that classic tradition. Uh, you know, I'm an anthropologist and, and uh, you always try to find the right conduit to culture. You know, how do you break down the inherent barrier that exists by definition between you and a, and a society that you find yourself living in as a guest? And so, for example, I became a botanist when I went to the Amazon because what better way to create connection uh, to people for whom the botanical realm is a foundation of their lives than to go to them as a seeker of knowledge of the plants. You know, it's funny, you know, anthropologists, you know, you know, we kind of turn up someone's doorstep and announce that, you know, we're here, you're going to house and feed us for six months. And by what, we're here to study your sex lives. I mean, if someone did that to <laughs> us, we'd call the police. So, you know, part of the dance of, um, of ethnography is finding the right entry point. You know, how do you, how do you break down? I, that's something I love about it. How do you break down that barrier? And of course, it's never bravado. It's never um, uh, 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 macho. You know, it's always empathy and love. You know, the mm -hmm. same place that would make me welcome in your house in Squamish at, at Thanksgiving. Good manners, a willingness to eat what's put in front of me, sleep where I'm asked to sleep, self-deprecating humor, just what we do as humans to get along. Now, in terms of the hunt, if you're going to, for example, want to live with the Inuit, um, or any hunting society, Athabascan peoples, um, you know, the central axis of their spiritual lives is a terrible fact that to live, um, they have to kill the thing they love most, which is the animals upon which they depend. And in fact, as Joseph Campbell said, the most origin myths or emerged out of the hunt, you know, and this terrible need to rationalize the fact that you have to kill that you love. And by establishing a kind of covenant between predator and prey and a way of rationalizing that that um, the, the, that terrible thing. So, for example, as you well know, in the Inuit culture in the Arctic, if a child takes a seal from the ice and fails to drip fresh water into its mouth, hmm. uh, it will never hunt. He will never or she will never hunt successfully again. If you spend time in Australia with the Aboriginal people, um, when they kill a kangaroo, there is an extraordinary uh, precise choreography as to what you do with the carcass, which bones you break to release what spirit, who eats what when. And, and again, you see that you see that um, in the in the in the distribution of food. You know, once I was in the Arctic and, and the fellows I've been with, we've been polar bear hunting and they had successfully shot a polar bear and they were hacking up the frozen meat when we got back to Glulik. 
and suddenly, you know, even as they had their very precise list um, uh, of all the elders who would receive what portion, and they were very meticulously going through that, suddenly this woman comes pouring by the camp, picks up the choicest morsel, and begins to nod because, you know, it may not please people, but polar bear meat is incredibly delicious. It's much more like pork than it is grizzly bear or black bear. Oh, wow. Stringy and greasy. It's, it's I mean... I, you know, it's not something you want to advertise, but it's awfully good. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, and and um, but the point is, I was perplexed. Like, what? How is this woman breaking protocol? But she wasn't, because in Inuit culture, names are incredibly important, and you and you inherit your name from particular relatives and ancestors, and then you become um, fused as if a common bone to that person. And that woman had been given the name of my friend's father and that didn't make her a namesake alone it made her him and therefore it was as if his own father had drifted by the camp and taken the choicest morsel so you know one of the things that i I think people forget about hunting is it's so primordial right i mean and and in many ways i think uh, religion was born of the hunt um, if you think about it, death is the first mystery. It, it's the edge beyond which life, as we know it, ends and wonder begins. And for all the centuries of inquiry, there is still nobody around who knows more than the guy at the corner pop store as to what happens to us once we kick off, right? And if you look at every religious worldview, it, it basically comes down to uh, you know a couple of things. Uh, trying to figure out what that moment really is about, and then and then um, dancing with eternity and trying to come out on top. I mean, that is sort of what religion is, and and I think that in that sense, religion was born of the hunt and that need to come to terms with the daily fact. I mean, eating meat in the Arctic is a sacramental uh, experience. Uh, it, you know, blood on ice, despite what Greenpeace says. Uh, it's not a sign of death in the Arctic. It's an affirmation of life itself, right? And I think how people, and that's why I think shamanism, the primordial religion, kind of grew out of these small hunting and gathering societies, whereby, you know, the shaman's um, goal is to not socialize people into a collective, into a congregation where they can be basically indoctrinated with a religious ideology, but rather to free the individual's wild genius. Um, and that's the essence of the shamanic um, uh, experience. And, and, and the hunt was a moment, the flash of insight that said, we better figure out what this is about. Because if we you know, we've got a reciprocal relationship with these animals. We all walk the earth. Many societies have as a profound insight the notion that animals are just people in another dimension of reality. And if we, yeah. if you're in the, uh, in the Amazon, for example, you don't just go into the forest and hunt. You've got to go to the shaman. The shaman has got to go beneath the earth to the domain of the animal keepers, the the hay spirits, and work out a deed that if we are taking energy from life, what do we give back in reciprocity? And so, you know, in that sense, uh, hunting is is an act of grace um, and an affirmation of connection to the natural world. And I think that's something that people, um, you know, in an urban society often forget about hunting. I think it's one of the reasons. Yeah, we certainly do. 
and I think it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, the 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 father to son, in particular father to daughter, hunting lineage in a hunting family, is so powerful, right? Uh, now, now this doesn't mean that I'm 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 um, uh, defending uh, barbaric practices of the hunt. Uh, I, I'm not defending necessarily uh, those who pay millions of dollars to put a head on the wall. But I would say this, uh, much as people uh, condemn uh, big game hunting, they forget that the big game hunters, the outfitters, are actually valuing the prey at the, the real market value. So I find the question is not why we permit trophy hunting in British Columbia, but rather why do we allow a dentist from Burnaby, just because he has a driver's license from British Columbia, to go a thousand kilometers, two thousand kilometers north into the territory of the Dene or the Taltan and and shoot a sheep for the price of a three hundred dollar tag, a sheep that on the global market is worth forty five thousand dollars. Now, what right does the residents in Burnaby, as opposed to Bellingham, uh, give uh, a bourgeois dentist the right to take that animal? An animal that, if it was taken, were to be taken, uh, blessed if it's not taken, but were to be taken by a, a commercial outfitter, that would represent $45,000 spread around the community. I would also say that those of us who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. We've lived in an economy of resource extraction. Uh, we don't think twice, many of us, uh, to the destruction of the richest old growth forests on the planet. And what is it that's more sacrosanct about a seven or eight year old stone sheep than a 1200 year old red cedar tree that we cut down and ship overseas without thinking? So I think there's a lot of kind of confusion and hypocrisy because the hunting thing is so emotionally laden. And I say that not as a hunter, but only as a non-hunter who has spent an awful lot of time in hunting camps. Your lens as an anthropologist clearly inform so many of the ways that you see people, cultures, the world, and even your your act of hunting as an anthropologist or just as a, a personal outing, perhaps. And so linking it to um, our, our conversation here of the U.S. and empire decline, how does your lens as an anthropologist and see having seen so many uh, cultures face their own existential crisis of will 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 my will my way of life be around in another generation? How does that inform the way that you see uh, America today? Well, you know, Perhaps. I mean, uh, you know, ch cultures are always changing. No culture is static. Mm -hmm. You know, it preserves jam, but not culture. And um, the key, the essay that you're referring to that came out in Rolling Stone in the summer it hit a certain nerve um it did. I've, never, I've never had a reaction to that i mean it had 362 million social media impressions on the internet um over 5 million people read it on the rolling stone site and visitations to my wikipedia site soared from 150 a day to 4000 a day um and what it was and i guess what it it, it hit at a certain perfect moment when people were um you know, the COVID crisis had come, lockdown had come, the initial kind of um, 
almost quasi-excitement to be part of this global phenomena uh, and even see the revitalization of the earth as we sort of watched if there was one good thing that came out of COVID was the realization that, you know, you know the, the mountains above Kathmandu and Karachi and Delhi could finally be seen, no more smog for a moment, or rivers running clean like trout streams through cities like Medellin in Colombia, or the, the wildlife re-inhabitating the urban space as we saw all over the world. Uh, but then we had settled down by August and we we're basically saying, what the heck is this? You know, and I, I had been asked to write about COVID, um, but I had never really felt I had anything novel to say until one night I was just paddling around House Sound and uh, I had this flash that COVID wasn't really a story of medicine or healthcare, morbidity or mortality, but really a story of culture and that how an individual nation was dealing with this really said something about it and and the um the, the 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 remarkable thing about the u.s response was how poor it was and suddenly you know a nation that had been born with an image of its own exceptionalism was feeling itself to be almost a failed state you know ruled by a buffoon of a president at the time who was advocating the use of disinfectants to treat a disease that intellectually he could not understand and as one journalist uh, from Ireland wrote, uh, you know, there have been many emotions expressed about America uh, uh, over the last years since the end of World War II and the really the birth, full birth, the, the, the fluorescence of the American century, if you will. Uh, but one that's never been expressed is pity. And as the, as the you know, healthcare workers in the States awaited emergency airlifts of fundamental supplies, uh, swabs, uh, masks, uh, from Asia, it was almost like the hinge of history opened to the Chinese century, and and of course, as you as you suggested, empires and kingdoms uh, uh, are born to die, uh, and none of them uh, 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 anticipate their demise. Um, you know, the, the the 15th century belonged to the Portuguese, the 16th to the Spanish, the 17th to the Dutch, the 18th to the French, the 19th to the British, and amazingly, the British Empire, in terms of the map painted red reached its greatest geographical extent as late as 1935. Well, we know that, of course, by then uh, the empire was over and it was bled white and bankrupt, not just by the First World War, but it was in decline by the Diamond Jubilee. And similarly, America, you know, reached this extraordinary dominance in the wake of World War II, uh, where it generated half the world's economy. Um, uh, made 90% of the world's automobiles, and that allowed for a certain truce between labor and capital that allowed for a vibrant working and lower and middle class, where a father or a man generally, uh, you know, could go to work uh, in a factory and make a good living, uh, a secure living, buy a home, buy a car, put his kids through good public schools, whatever. And, and, and that 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 kind of it wasn't a golden age of america culturally if you were gay black or a woman certainly but in terms of economics it was kind of a golden age of of distributed wealth whereby for example a ceo might have an income 20 times that of a staff uh, member on his on his team but not 500 times as today where the marginal tax rates were 90 percent um, uh, whereas today, and that didn't mean everybody paid that much, but that was a symbol that those who are wealthy contribute. Uh, today, the top 1% control $30 trillion of assets in the States, the lower 
half have more of people have more debt than assets. The top three people in America in terms of wealth control more wealth than the um, than uh, the 160 million of their poorer uh, citizens. And that kind of discrepancy uh, came about also as as the the structure of American life was being shaken by globalization and any working man or woman uh, knew damn well that globalization was just a fluffed up term for capital on the prowl internationally in search of cheaper for sources of labor. And as literally millions of factory jobs were shipped overseas, um, the, the heart of America began to crumble. And we could see in the statistics, you know, um, divorce rates soaring during the 1960s, the only 6% of American homes having grandparents beneath the same roof as grandchildren, the average American youth by 18, three years watching television or a video screen contributing to an obesity epidemic so severe the Joint Chiefs of Staff were calling it a national security crisis. Uh, you know, the leading cause of death no longer being car accidents for those under 50, but the addiction and abuse of legal opiate drugs, not to mention crystal meth and all these other horrific fentanyl and all these drugs on the black market. Uh, uh, and so you, you, you had this, uh, this world that was in some sense uh, crumbling into kind of two different, uh, 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 very much two different halves, if you will, or, and, and, um, and, and, and then this, this played out um uh you know when you had um people losing faith in institutions when you when you had people flaunting and ignoring basic medical advice and going to the beaches or the conventions this was not a sign of strength uh it was a sign of the weakness of a people who lacked the stoicism to endure the pandemic or the fortitude to defeat it you know i would argue that you know um trump was able to he was by no means the cause of any of this. He was a symptom of the decline, uh, but he was a he was a cattle, he was a critical figure. You know, if George Washington famously couldn't tell a lie, this man couldn't recognize the truth. Over thirty thousand documented lies from the president's mouth in a four-year term. If Abraham Lincoln asked in his moment of peril for charity for all and malice toward none. This um, bone spur hero of a president, this buffoon of a man, this bully with a you know this coward with a backbone of a bully, um, he practiced uh, charity toward none and malice toward all. And when you build a wall across your border, you know that's an act of treason in a sense because treason isn't just the uh, the delivery of state secrets to your enemy. It's also when you betray the fundamental values that make your country unique and strong. And and uh, immigration was always a symbol, you know, the huddled masses. And of course, every immigrant group had to claw its way ashore. It was never easy, but access was there. And I would argue that the the, the building of this wall across the American border, uh, Mexican border was both silly, impossible, ridiculously expensive, but also in a certain sense, a treasonous. And by the same token, when I talk about America having gone from birth to decadence without passing through civilization, as Oscar Wilde said, there was something profoundly decadent in 2016. Uh, and indeed, even in the recent election turn in 2020, 
when you have 25 million people voting their indignation. It's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the Trump cohort, they're not stupid and they're no monolith. And, and these people surely knew um, that this man was ill-equipped for the job, singularly ill-equipped for the job. But his only credential for that job was his willingness to validate their hatreds um, and and uh, legitimize their grievances. And that's not, that's not a good motivation for, for, for casting your vote. And to me, that, again, is a, in a sense a sign of, of a certain level of decadence. And that's why I, I wrote that piece, uh, not not looking, hopefully, towards an American decline. If America uh, does decline and we move to a Chinese century, we'll be nostalgic for the best years of the American century. But I, as an anthropologist, my, my goal is to look beneath the surface of things and reveal them as they appear. So on, on that note, how would you best boil down the split between Americans? What are they fundamentally arguing for? These, these two sides? Well, it, it all comes down to race in America. Race is the story of America. You know, this resurgence of the Proud Boys and, and, and the acts like in Charlottesville, um, these, are, these aren't kind of quirky anomalies. If you actually look at American history from inception, it was born in this impossible contradiction. Uh, George Washington, champion of the revolution, first American president, the most handsome man of his era who stood a, a, a head taller than any of his peers, had one flaw, bad teeth, and he had wooden dentures, but in those dentures were nine teeth dragged from the living mouth, the mouths of living slaves of his. Uh, Madison, who wrote the Constitution, uh, was in Philadelphia, and he needed to buy some British publications to help him work out his ideas for that seminal document, but he couldn't afford them. So he decided he would just simply have to sell Billy, who had been his personal slave since Madison was nine years old. So these are just sort of little uh, portraits of the extent to which race defines America. There, you know, there was a lot of revisionism in American history about the US Civil War that many of us, including me, sort of bought into, that it was only partially about slavery, that it was about states' rights. It was about agrarian South versus a industrialized North, an immigrant North versus a more traditional Anglo-Irish South, you know, et cetera. And, and this was something that was certainly perpetuated in Ken Burns' well-regarded Civil War series, you know. But the truth is, it was always about slavery. If you actually look at a speech by Andrew Stevens, who was Jefferson Davis's uh, vice president in Savannah during the war, he literally says, look, you all made a mistake with the Constitution because you use this term that all men are created equal, but they're not, and we don't believe they are. We are not, we are not part of that. We believe that the whites are supreme. We are a white supremacist society. I mean, he was blatant about it. And then, and then, of course, the, you know, the myth of the lost cause and, and, and that all came out of post-Reconstruction South when, when they, they reinvented this sort of myth about what the war had been about. And then even as a series of Supreme Court um, decisions um, uh, allowed the creation of the Jim Crow regime, which was essentially, you know, supposedly separate but equal but never equal and the beginning of this hideous period of segregation, such that in World War I, for example, the man in charge of the blood plasma transfusions uh, work at the Red Cross, which had saved 
thousands of soldiers on the battlefields of France resigned because resigned because um, he the the Red Cross would not allow plasma from black soldiers to be placed into the bodies of whites. So I mean it it goes so deep in um, uh, in, in American. Um, uh, history and 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 that division is what we're seeing now in good measure. Look, it's and becoming you, a different culture. Demographic a little of the this deep seated racial issue, and then you've got Trump supporters voting to destroy the establishment, and then liberals coming out in mass. Sure, I mean th- 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 this this in a sense all began. Uh, with with Nixon, when you know Nixon, for example, created the war on drugs, not because he cared about drugs, he really didn't, but he saw it as a wedge issue that would uh, galvanize what he was calling the silent majority, and so they placed their they 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 tapped into parents' fear of drugs and and contempt for hippies, if you will. And then the ongoing deep uh, uh, fear that white people had of black people in the wake of all the disturbances of the 1960s, you know, the burning of the cities, uh, particularly in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King. And the Republican Party, you know, rode this horse and, and Reagan, you know, turned the party and the people against Washington. You know, he famously said the worst, the most dangerous words in the world were, were Washington's coming to help. Um, and And, you know, and so the Republican Party had become the party of white people. And the and 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 you you can look on a map of America, and it's a rural party for the most part, dominated by the the West and South as opposed to the Northeast, which had been the main sort of fountain of Republican politicians for most of the early parts of the twentieth century, the Wall Street Republican um, elite, if you will, and increasingly the Democratic Party has become the party of cities, and the cities are the place of of uh, diversity, diversity being immigrants, uh, Latinos, blacks, and increasingly it is the party of, I mean, it's not that a, a lot of white liberals don't back the Democratic Party, obviously, but but it, it's overwhelmingly the party of uh, African Americans and um, less so Hispanics, but still. Um, and those are sort of two, and, and you know, and in a way, um, I think what's happening at a deep level is, uh, 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 for example, when my Rolling Stone piece came out, there were, the, the response from, if you will, the left was sort of sadness, but we're going to determination, we're going to get America right. The response from the right was vitriolic and incredibly hateful with um, really vicious language. But curiously, a preponderance of deeply misogynist um, re- references. I was called menstrual discharge. I didn't even know that was pejorative. Uh, I was a pussy lover. I mean, these terms you cannot even say even on a podcast. And it surprised me because the article says absolutely nothing about women whatsoever, to a fault. But what I think happened is that we forget that our society has been asked to absorb changes that are truly um, 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 uh, dramatic, to say the least. Look, in a a single generation, uh, women have gone from the kitchen to the boardroom people of color from the woodshed to the White House, uh, uh, gay people from the closet to the altar. Brad, you can't, someone your age, my daughter's age, she also lives in Squamish. It's impossible for you guys to remember, you know, if you ever see a, a TV show like Mad Men, 
and you see how women are treated, your generation can't really believe that it was really like that. How could it be? But it was in the same way that, you know, how would you just leave your garbage in a city park? But believe me, the first environmental initiative was Lady Bird Johnson just trying to get Americans to stop throwing garbage out of a car window. That was considered a great environmental victory. Yeah. So, so the idea, you know, when, when AIDS hit, I had dozens of friends die from AIDS because my best friend Tim was gay and he was in that early forefront of, of, of gay um, individuals for whom sexual promiscuity was in a sense a political statement. And they're the ones who really got hammered and he died in the late 1980s, you know, like, you know, when, when AIDS was at a, at a height. But again, if you had told me then that gay men would be able to legally marry, I would have said, you're crazy. So these are really profound changes, a sociological equivalent, equivalent of splitting the atom. And, you know, there's some of us um, for whom those changes we recognize as being positive, good, you know, and then for others, they're terribly disturbing and frightening. And, and those changes critically happened and grew in the same era in which um, uh, 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 factory jobs were being lost. And so working men in many of these communities suddenly had their entire identity swept from beneath them. The idea that a son could, or a daughter for that matter, could follow a father into the plant, that generations of men would be Ford men and work for Ford, you know, all that was washed away. So the financial stability is gone. Um, you know, faith in everything is undercut. Meanwhile, these people on the coast who, who express themselves with contempt for you uh, put on shows in which they show two men kissing each other and put it on NBC and your children are supposed to watch that. Whatever you want to say about all this, uh, the, the perceived threat um, of, of a sectarian society, uh, 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 not sectarian rather, but um, uh, uh, non-religious society, um, um, uh, uh, secular society, I'm sorry. Um, all this stuff begins to feel very threatening to you. And, and, and when people get pressured like that, they get mad and they get, and they flail out and they want to know who's, who's responsible. And, and, and the problem with history is, is that it happens whether we like it or not. And it's like a miasma. It's like a mist. It's not like something you can reach out and hold to, onto. It simply sweeps by us. And so we're involved in this period of incredible change and and that change is really working for some people and it's working very badly for a lot of people and they can't get their hands on the source of what that that change is who's doing this to me and that's why i think you then get these conspiracy theories right yeah and of course all of this is amplified on steroids by the internet the silo of knowledge of the internet the fact that most americans get their news from Facebook and Facebook organizes your news based on what you already believe. Um, the, the democratization of opinion, the anonymity of opinion, uh, the lack of discretion that that implies. I mean, people write things anonymously, whether it's an Amazon book review or, you know, a comment on someone's Instagram site that they wouldn't dare say uh, if they were facing that person uh, uh, publicly. Um, you know, I noticed this even as a writer, you know, Amazon sells most retail books now in, in uh, uh, whether we like it or not, in the United States, certainly. 
and you know you'll get you, you know you get these these are not you know these reader reviews and you know you'll get five stars for 50 reviews where every reviewer says this book is the best thing since the bible and i'm not talking about my books i'm talking about any author right and then you'll get the 51st one that says this is a piece of crap garbage waste of my time waste of my and it's so fascinating isn't that person noticing that there are 50 people who have a different opinion and that just maybe his or her opinion is the one that's off base and just maybe they, you know, not bother. No, everybody thinks they've got a right to litter the world with themselves. There's this democracy of opinion. And I, I, I think in, in that sense, the internet is extraordinarily dangerous. Um, and social media has really, uh, you know, it, it's finally coming to a little bit of a reckoning, but boy, the glory days of, 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 of the birth of the internet when we thought it would be this great free space of information uh, long over uh, as we live in an era of surveillance capitalism. Well, it seems like that's how so many technologies go. They rise, it's hailed as this cornucopia of bountiful flourishing for humanity, and then it turns into some leverage tool for uh, warfare whether it's propaganda well that's really true with i think i think it's especially true with communications right i mean uh, yeah um you know we've the, seen it with all communications technology television certainly went that way it had great promise mm -hmm. uh radio to some extent went that way and one of the things we don't we we forget that you know the, the, the government plays an important role in some of these issues for example when radio first came along in the 1920s um people thought very carefully, like who owns the airwaves? I mean, you could own and build a radio station, but who owns that airwave, you know? And it was decided that that was collective space, like a commons. And therefore you, you couldn't, you know, you, if you're going to get a radio station licensed, you took on certain obligations. You couldn't just put out diatribe or, or demagoguery into the public airspace. And that was what was became known as the fairness doctrine. And, and that really, was the regulation that gave us Walter Cronkite, you know, the, the avuncular before your time, but the avuncular newsman of the classic image of the evening news uh, that made Walter Cronkite the most trusted man in America uh, for two generations, because news had to be balanced right now. You know, that, that sometimes can be taken to an extreme because it's sort of silly idea that there's always two sides to the story. If someone simply slaughters people with a machine gun, then there's not a side of his innocence, right? You know, but basically, if you've got a, a story that's got is, 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 is open to interpretation and opinion, you have an obligation to sort of present both sides. That's what sort of, but Reagan very deliberately um, uh, um, canceled or eliminated the fairness doctrine. And that's what gave us Rush Limbaugh. That's what gave us talk radio. That's what gave us a far right. The problem is that demagoguery is not something liberals do very well, even if they try to do it. Uh, but it's something that demagogues do very well, uh, particularly fascists, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and fascists also don't simply disagree with their enemies and eliminate them as statistics as communists do fascists have to burn books they have to destroy ideas they, they there's a level of kind of personal vindictive hatred of the other uh, that becomes very uh, uh very uh, pathological and that's what america finds itself in now but a lot of it you know another way of another way of uh, looking at this brad 
is, okay, instead of trying to figure out what's gone wrong in America, what's gone right in other places? And for example, in that um, Rolling Stone piece, trying to show Americans, you know, that, you know, who feel that, you know, social democracy is just communism and light, when in fact, the economies of Denmark and Sweden, Canada, New Zealand, um, these are dynamic capitalist economies, deeply entrepreneurial, but just with a focus on raising all the opportunities of all people uh, in the society. And the way I tried to express that in that piece was, you know, an allegory from um, Safeway. You know, you go to get your groceries in an American Safeway, and there's a kind of a social, racial, educational class chasm between you and the checkout person, which is very difficult to bridge. And you go to the Safeway anywhere in Canada, you don't feel that. And the reason is that you know that the clerk knows that they're getting a living wage because of the unions. Secondly, you know that their kids probably go to the same public school, neighborhood public school, as your kids. And third and most important, they know that you know that if they get sick, they get the same medical care as you do and the prime minister's kids do. And those three strands woven together become the fabric of social de democracy. I mean, the key thing in Canada vis-a-vis -vis COVID was that we had a society that believed in our institution, uh, generally trusted science and trusted um, our scientific authorities, and a healthcare system that was based on serving the collective, not the individual, and certainly not the private investor uh, who views every hospital bed as if it's a, as if it's a rental property. And 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 the society. I mean, we haven't been perfect for sure, but in general, Canada responded to the obvious call to socially distance to. Um, use masks and and in no place in Canada, except maybe a few nutters here and there, did the use of masks become a political issue. Whereas in the United States, it was allowed to cleave the country, which was an extraordinary statement of both how illiterate scientifically Americans are, but also how everything is seen through the lens of politics grievance and um, and contempt for the other, even hatred for the other. And, and you know, I, I, I told a, another story uh, that's not in the Rolling Stone piece, but a personal story that when my mother uh, was 85, living alone in Victoria, she got a headache on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. And by two o'clock, she was being uh, prepped um, uh, for neurosurgery. And um, uh, and by the time my sister and I got her, her life had been saved by, by chance, an immigrant Indo-Canadian doctor, a brilliant surgeon. And in that same ICU was a young girl from Manitoba, surrounded by her Mennonite family, who had unexpectedly had the same medical problem, and her life that day had been saved by the same doctor. And my sister, you know, later noted, you know, we could have paid for the service for my mother. My sister's a lawyer, I've done well that farming family from Manitoba might have faced a choice between the life and well-being of their daughter or the economic viability of their family. And the critical thing is in Canada, we say that's not a choice that any person in a civilized society should have to make. And at that time, the Empress Hotel had a policy that any family member with a with a relative in an ICU at a Victoria hospital got a free room for the night. So both families poured out of the ICU when they kicked us out, went down to the old Bengal lounge in the in the Empress, 
And the Mennonites don't drink, so I bought them juice or tea or mint tea or whatever they wanted. My sister had a glass of wine. I had a beer. And we did a toast. And we didn't toast our loved ones, their daughter, our mother, who'd survived the day, though they were in our hearts. We didn't even toast the doctor who had done such brilliant work, although he was very much in our hearts as well. We toasted our country because it was our country that had brought us together uh, with this muted patriotism so different from flag-wrapped chauvinistic cant. And here we were, two families from opposite ends of the Canadian spectrum, rural, urban, religious, non-religious, secular, um, uh, you know, educated, less educated, um, you know, British Columbia, Manitoba, whatever you want to say, we couldn't have been more different. But in that moment, we were as one. And, and that's because of our healthcare system. And what Americans always miss about universal healthcare is that it's got nothing to do with healthcare. It's got nothing to do with medicine. Healthcare is a statement that every citizen belongs that no citizen is above another when it comes to the right to life, you know, the right to be cared for in a moment of extreme crisis. And what the Americans don't understand is how that statement becomes a kind of glue of solidarity and connectivity. And it's precisely for that, that when you cross the Canadian border, levels of tension and anger drop. It's not just healthcare, and it's not that they drop completely, but there is no question whatsoever that the overall vibe in Canada is one of consilience and, and cooperation. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, look at the national mottos, Bradford, you know, France, liber liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, uh, and brotherhood. Well, France has never had any of the above. Look at the Americans, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I dare say America's never had any of the above. And what do we have? It's very boring. Uh, peace, order, and good government. But you know what, Bradford? That's exactly what every Canadian has had since Confederation. It works. You know, there's a great story of the wonderful travel writer Jan Morris, who just recently died, who said you could drown of niceness in Vancouver. And what had happened is she had bumped into a Canadian kid like you, and the kid had said, I'm sorry. And Jan, this old woman, couldn't understand why this young Canadian boy was uh, saying, I'm sorry, because she had whacked him. But what Jan didn't understand is that the phrase, I'm sorry, in Canada is not an apology. It's a mantra. It's a way of saying, look, you and I live in this impossible country where for most of our history, there were more lakes than people. The weight of the winter hovers in our imagination, defines the essence of our national soul. We have to get along with each other because otherwise we'd be in trouble. And we're a place of consilience and cooperation and camaraderie fundamentally. We like each other. And you didn't want to hit me and I didn't want to be whacked by you. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, you're not apologizing to the person, you're apologizing for the moment of awkwardness that could risk shattering that calm between us. And that's why I'm sorry is a mantra. And I think what you see in Canada, yes, we're seeing cases soar uh, compared to what we've had. But bear in mind that all cases of COVID in Canada since the outbreak of the pandemic are what, 650,000, something like that. The Americans are getting two and 300,000 cases a day. Um, in July, when the epidemic was, it seemed uh, at a peak, of course it wasn't, 
There was a day when America reported close to 60,000 cases in a day, which was astronomical at the time. Uh, on that very day in all hospitals in British Columbia, there were five cases of COVID, right? And so something was working here, right? And um, I mean, that's why, you know, Robin Williams said uh, to live in Canada is like living in an apartment above a meth lab. Or others have said that the wall that Trump should have built was along, it should have been around the 49th parallel. Well, um, I don't want to be an imposter. I'm actually not Canadian, but I, I fully agree with so many things you say. I actually uh, grew up in Georgia and I was in, I'm American, I was in the States till early 20s and moved here much for the reasons you, you profess because of the healthcare system and the social contract. Um, and when, when you, when you frame it all like that, it's so fascinating and, and, and enlightening in some ways. Um, what we're doing here with this, with this project, our theme, our underlying theme that undergirds the whole, the whole, um, agenda or, well, not agenda, but our, um, um, our vision is that if history, even Canada is wonderful, but it's not a perfect system, as you say. So even if history has not yet once produced a perfect system, perhaps it's not the system that needs fixing, but us. And so looking at America, we've become so self-focused and perhaps becoming other focused. Is that our only way to survive? Well, I think I think it's it's important um, for young people in particular. Um, you know, there's never been a perfect society. Obviously, there's never been a perfect time to live. You know, uh, um, um, you know, it's like you know these horrible commencement speakers at college who sort of, you know, list a bunch of terrible things about the world and tell this graduating class it's up to them to fix it. Well, I mean that's bullshit. I mean they didn't cause the problem. And and what graduating classes ever graduated in the world free of troubles? I mean one of the no. one of the um, the most wise things my father ever told me, and he was not a religious man, but he definitely believed in good and evil. And he would say to you, you know, son, there's good and evil in the world. Take your pick and get on with it. And what he was really saying is you'll never vanquish. We have this illusion in Christianity in particular that if we just work hard enough, we'll conquer evil. I mean, this is the whole image of Christ and the fallen archangel who's the devil. And they, they're brought together in battle with the hope that good overcomes evil and all that. Well, it's very different uh, philosophy in, in Tibet, for example. Um, or in India, you know, it, 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 it's interesting. There was a famous heresy in the, in the 14th century uh, where priests would say the obvious, if God's all powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? And if you ask that question, you were burned at the stake because uh, it challenged the fundamental basis of, of Christian um, power and ideology. And but if you ask that question in India to Lord Krishna, as famously occurred, uh, why is if God's all powerful, why does he allow evil in the universe? Uh, Lord Krishna said to thicken the plot. In other words, good and evil exist, um, and you're never going to vanquish either one of them. But your role in life isn't to try to vanquish the other, it's to put your shoulder to the wheel of righteousness and do your bit. Uh, knowing full well you're never going to eliminate the other, but you're also going to put your weight behind the forces of good. It's sort of like the Buddhist idea of life. You know, life is not a destination. The path of the pilgrim doesn't isn't to go anywhere. 
is to achieve not a destination, but a state of mind, right? And uh, once you adopt that, it really, I think, helps you live uh, a contented life. You know, bitterness always comes to, to those who are disappointed by failures or, or those who look back on a life of decisions imposed upon them. The most important thing for a young person to become is the architect of their own life. Uh, so that when they look back at a long life, they may not agree with every decision they made, but they know that they've owned the decisions. And therefore, how can they think that their own life is wrong? And that's kind of the key to contentment in old age. And by the same token, if you want to try to, you know, I'm 67. And, you know, I've just finished my 23rd book, I'm jumping in my 24th book, I can't wait. Uh, I, I'm as full of life and, uh, and energy as ever before. I, I still have a thousand dreams, uh, a million places to go, uh, a, a million uh, experience to to have. And I think I can keep that um, that going in part because I, I I will never get bitter because I will never get disappointed. This, this was a big lesson for me, um, both out of coming out of a place of sort of politics in the 60s, and 70s, and um, but also environmentalism in, in, in later years, you know, you win some battles, you lose some battles, but, but um, you, you mustn't let a defeat drive you from the field or, or otherwise it becomes in a sense, a, 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 a twin loss, you know, you, you, you lose a battle. And the, the, those in favor, uh, those on your in your in your army lose a lose a soldier, if you will. And so I, I, I think that that that's, you know, it, it life is a process. It's not it's not a it's not a goal driven thing. Um, and I think that's a very important message for young people. You know, there's good and evil. There's always going to be good and evil. Um, uh, pick your side and hopefully it's a side of righteousness and then get on with being good. You know, the your article, as you said earlier, it struck such a massive chord. On, on both sides, and there was very different, um, uh, a very different reaction. What are what are Americans seeking right now? Do Do you think your article touched some of that? Like, what are they all searching for? Is it essentially something that's common and that can be a building ground, or is it completely different narratives? And the answer for those years is so different. There's, there's, you know, I mean, I mean, the, the, the most haunting thing to come out of the election uh, was the fact that 75 million people, despite everything Trump had done, uh, voted for him. And and if you looked at the pluralities, all the focus were on these swing states. But in most states, the chasm was so broad. I mean, if you look at California, Vermont, Massachusetts, New York, the Democrats won by huge margins, right? But similarly in Wyoming. Uh, Texas, uh, you know, Arkansas, you name it, uh, Oklahoma, the Republicans won by huge numbers. I mean, sometimes 30, even 43 percent in Wyoming. Uh, and so so the country is divided. The majority of Republicans still feel the election has been stolen. And this is this is the the, the, the true legacy of Trump that will be uh, it'll take a long time to eliminate this, the, 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 the fluidity of truth, the, the, the notion that truth is what I say it to be. Um, uh, th this, is the, this is the betrayal of Donald J. Trump that will resonate through history. 
uh, this is his real act of treason, turning the country against truth for his own self-interest. Um, uh, but um, that said, the country is exhausted. Um, the divides have been absolutely exasperated by media. I mean, by the end of the 2020 campaign, it was almost as impossible to watch CNN if you were a liberal uh, as, if, as watching Fox News. Both were kind of, you know, tiresome. And, um, uh, you know, societies, societies have gone through um, schisms um, far more profound than this one. I mean, the U.S. during the Civil War is an obvious example, but nations like Colombia, 50-year Civil War, or Ireland, and, and generally what happens is that, um, you, you know, divides come together when people are just collectively exhausted, when they sort of say enough, when enough people seek a middle way, when enough people are repelled by forces left and right uh, at the same time, when people recognize that the middle way, as the Dalai Lama says, is the, is the way to move through life, if you will. Um, and, and then as enough people die um, um, who hold so viciously to certain beliefs, um, you know, in the in the states, the Republicans are facing a major. I mean, the, the more immediate question is: can, Will a Republican Party be able to survive? Because the the demographics are such that the country is becoming more and more non-white. Uh, but also, you know, the the old time uh, whites. I mean, don't don't forget that until 1967, a black it was illegal for a black boy to marry a white girl or a white boy to marry a black girl. In 1967, don't forget, I was 14 years old, and that was still the case in most U.S. states. So we still have people, anyone who's 75, 70 years and older, lived through a time when, when that was a reality, you know, where you never met a homosexual, or, or a time even in which the hint of the possibility that someone was a homosexual was a career a, a career destroyer literally 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 you know where women uh had three choices teaching a secretarial or nursing i mean one of the things we forget that public schools when i went to public school were so fantastic not because they had good uh, well well funded but because they were, because these were the, we were taught by women who are today running major corporations running nations you know, um, acting as surgeons. I mean, this is the incredible thing. I can only imagine the caliber of the women that taught me elementary school in 1950s, right? So, uh, you know, societies, uh, you know, history rolls on. And uh, I think that, um, you know, I think that there's, there's a good chance. What, when we say, what do people want? People want normalcy. People don't want to care about what someone puts on a Twitter feed. People, people want, uh, don't want any reason to watch evening news. Uh, people want to find, um, they're sick of, no one likes division. I mean, there, there's always going to be extremists on both sides who, who live off of it, right? Like that's their identity. They, they, they get a kind of a, a surge of, of, uh, of uh, adrenaline from hatred. There's always been people like that, but the vast majority and, you know, if we have just four years of recovery from COVID, a decency in the White House, 
um, kindness and compassion in the White House, which you will definitely have with Joe Biden. I mean, the, you know, uh, you know, people on the left are saying he's not far enough left. He'll compromise with. It. I mean, it's like, of course, you're going to compromise with the Republicans. It's called politics. I mean, the problem is when the Republicans don't compromise with you. But at the same time, um, you know, no one's going to question the integrity of this man. Um, and it, it will it will be a, it's it's deeply important who is the American president for the American um, body politic. And there will be a calming influence that will that that may just lead Joe Biden to be a very much revered um, national leader. Thank you so much for all these thoughts. Um, we're we're getting close to our end of our time here. You've got a new book coming out. Um, where where can folks find that? And um, where can folks find more of your work, or if you're on social media or not? Well, I'm. I'm um, uh, the new book is called Magdalena River of Dreams, and it's available uh, at every local bookstore or on Amazon or all the sources. You know, um, it's a beautiful book. Uh, it's. Um, in a sense, it's a love letter to Columbia, which is sort of a second home to me. I, I was made an honorary Columbian citizen, um, and uh, it's a book that uh, it's full of empathy and, and explains the violence that has plagued Columbia, uh, but also celebrates the wonder of who the Columbian people are through the metaphor of its major river, the Magdalena, the river of life. Um, uh, and uh, in terms of other stuff, my website, www.davisway.com, has lots of films that I've made on it. Um, Google my name, you'll find hundreds of YouTube films, or uh, I've written 23 books and, and they're all in print and uh, um, available, you know. Which one's your favorite book? Uh, well, you know, you always like the last one. I, I, but the best, <laughs> yeah. the, best, uh, yeah. the, best, the best books would be um, uh, One River, The Wayfinders, Into the Silence, and, um, and Magdalena. Okay, very cool. I if I cool. if I could have one bit of knowledge from another culture dumped into my brain, it would probably be the wayfinder's ability to navigate across oceans. That's yeah, a good metaphor. The the big lesson is that every culture is something to say. Each deserves to be heard, just like none mm. is on the route to the divine. Great. Well, thank you so much, Wade. My pleasure. All the best. Take care. Here at the Empire's New Clothes, we believe something big is in America's future, but we don't quite know what. If you'd like to continue the journey with us, like, subscribe, and let us know who you want us to interview next in the comments below. This next decade is going to be crazy, so join us as we try to figure out what's going on, and I look forward to seeing you next week.